Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, if you would with me, turn to Luke chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he, that, that he there is Jesus, was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we as we attend to your word this morning, as we examine it, that you would examine us by it. That we, we would understand how often the motivations of our own heart toward the law are to somehow try to keep it as a performance standard rather than seeing it as something that is gracious that points us forward to your Son. Seeing it as something that guides us as your sons and daughters in Christ as a blessing and a gift. Pray that you would help us to understand that this morning, that as we look at your word, that you would turn on the lights in our dark heads and that we would see the truth, we love it and rejoice over it, that we would know that Jesus is in fact Lord of the Sabbath. He is our hope and our eternal rest. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I occasionally get questions about the Sabbath and how it's to be celebrated, and what day it happens on, um, or what is Sunday worship, and why do we do that, and et cetera, et cetera. I occasionally get those questions from Christians. Well, they come something like this. Why should I come to worship every Sunday? Or what is the Sabbath? Or why should I set aside a day in my week from things like homework, or my vocational work, or perhaps even things like competitive sports, or et cetera, et cetera. Why should I treat Sunday different from just being a second Saturday? I mean, isn't that really being legalistic? That's the question that I'm often asked. Why should I set aside that day to rest and worship and enjoy time with family and friends? What if I have a job that requires me to work on a Sunday? Why did God set apart one day in seven? And does that still matter now that Jesus has come? Now see, that's a lot of questions. And I don't have time to answer all of them this morning. Nor do I intend to. Um, however, I'm going to hit on the, the sort of basic or essential question in there, which, which is this. Why did God set apart one day in seven? What is the purpose of the Sabbath? What's the purpose of it? In other words, what I want to talk about is what the purpose of the Sabbath really is, and then what I want to address is two ways in which we tend to undermine the gospel, Now, I want you to hear that, in which we undermine the gospel with our wrong-headed approach to the topic or the subject of the Sabbath. So why did God give the fourth commandment? Why did he give it? Why did he give the command to rest one day in seven and then how does, that, how, do, how does that lead to the opportunity for us in some way to abuse it and thereby undermine the gospel? 
Okay, that, that, you guys understand that's the subject. Okay, so let's take the first question. Here's the first question. Why did God give a Sabbath command? What was that all about anyway? Let's look with me at the text, but I want you to hear this answer. Because I want you to hear this first, and then we'll look at the text on it. The Sabbath command, the Sabbath command, or the fourth commandment. You guys have heard of the Ten Commandments? God gave Ten Commandments. The fourth one is the commandment to rest on the Sabbath. Fourth commandment was given to point forward to our rest in Jesus. Hear that? It was given to point forward to our rest in Jesus. So look at verse 1. On a Sabbath, you'll notice that word continues to come up again and again because Jesus regularly, in fact, you might say religiously, kept the Sabbath. Jesus was one who on every Sabbath went to the synagogue with God's people, gathered to worship, to teach, etc. He also did some other things like exercise demons and healed, which will be part of the controversy we'll see in, in, in a little bit. But Jesus religiously kept this day. And this day becomes a day of contention between the Pharisees and Jesus. In other words, the Pharisees don't like Jesus' view of this day. It comes up, on a Sabbath while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. And we'll deal a bit with what that means in a little bit. And some of the Pharisees, verse 2, said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? In other words, they see the disciples working in some way, and they say, listen, the fourth commandment tells us that we don't work on the Sabbath. We don't work that day. So why are your disciples violating that very clear law? And they think they've caught Jesus. We've caught him. He's not who he says he is. He doesn't even keep the commandments. And Jesus gives them a response in which he explains to them that they misunderstand the purpose of the law. And he culminates it in verse 5 with this. And he said to them, the Son of Man, that's himself, the Danielic Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, the one whom God will give all authority over all the nations. The Son of Man is Lord. He's sovereign of the Sabbath. See, what's going on here in this passage? I want to give you the big picture first, and then we'll dig into the details of how the Pharisees misunderstood the Sabbath. Here's a big picture. Jesus is ultimately saying this. This Sabbath, it's about me. Hear that? I'm sovereign over the Sabbath. It points to me. That's what Jesus is telling them. It was given to you to point forward to me, the Lord of the Sabbath. And because you don't get that, you don't know how to rightly apply the Sabbath command. So I want you to understand the flow of biblical teaching. In other words, what we call redemptive history. The history or the story of the way God is redeeming a fallen or a sinful man. Okay? I want you to understand that flow with regard to the Sabbath so that you get what Jesus is pointing to here. The Sabbath we first hear about as a pattern of creation. God creates in Genesis chapter 1. He creates everything in six days. And on the seventh day, it says he did what? He rested. Right? God rested. He had created Adam and Eve on the sixth day. And in Genesis chapter 2, we read more about the account of the creation of Adam and Eve. When he created them, he gave them something to do. It says to have dominion over the earth. And Adam was to work the ground. That was his job. He was to work it. So work was a part of the original created order. And it was a good thing. God worked six days and he rested on the seventh. And now Adam, you're to work six. So Adam was to work. And work was actually for Adam a joy, a blessing, a good thing. Until Adam and Eve decided to participate in sin. God has said to them, you can eat of any tree in this garden, but you can't eat of that tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan came to them and tempted Adam and Eve and said, don't listen to God. He just, he, he's lying to you. Taste the fruit. It's good. It'll make you wise. You, you want to eat it. And Adam and Eve, expressing ingratitude for all that God had given, 
expressing pride because they somehow wanted to put themselves above the word of God, chose to participate in eating that fruit. And they fell into sin. And God comes and he curses mankind. And I want you to hear a bit of what he says as a result of that curse. Because as soon as Adam and Eve ate the fruit, their eyes were opened. They saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. They were ashamed because they'd sinned. And so they try to cover their shame with fig leaves. And then they go and hide in the garden. They go and hide behind a bush when they hear God coming because they're afraid. So we see shame and fear and guilt and all of these things that come as a result of their sin. And God comes and He comes seeking them as God always does in the story of Scripture. He's always seeking after a lost, sinful, fallen humanity. That's what He's always doing. What does Jesus say about Himself? I have come to seek and save the lost. So God comes seeking them and He curses them. First he curses the serpent, but then he goes on, he tells Adam something about his work. In verse 17, he says to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Here's the point. God says, your work is now going to be frustrated. It's now going to be a toil. It's going to wear you out. You guys ever experienced that with work? Okay. Instead of just going out there and tending the garden and getting all these beautiful, this beautiful fruit and vegetables that you can eat, now what's going to happen is you go out there and tend the garden and all these weeds are going to grow up. And it's going to make work a pain. Right? And that's what's going to happen to work. And that's what's going to happen to you, Adam. And you're not going to really get the rest you desire any longer. You're not going to get that because you're going to be toiling all the time just to survive. You guys know what that's like, right? But he also gave them a promise in the midst of that curse. In Genesis 3, verse 15, he makes this promise. When he curses the serpent or Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That? What's going to happen is there's going to be a seed of the woman who comes. That's the Messiah, the promised one. And what he will do is he will come and he will crush the head of Satan and he will be attacked in doing it. So when you see the cross of Jesus Christ, that is the bruising of Jesus' heel and the crushing of Satan's head. And that's what we see throughout the biblical story with regard to God. What looks like apparent defeat is in fact God's victory at the cross. And so he says, I'm pointing forward to that. That's a promise I'm making you. And then what you see throughout Scripture is a progressive unfolding or revealing of how that promise is in fact coming to fruition. Hear that? So from here on, God makes a promise to fallen man. And from here on out, he begins to progressively unfold or reveal how that promise will take shape. Who that promise will take shape in until we get to Jesus. So everything that we see in the Old Testament is all a picture, is all types and shadows and pointers coming forward to the substance who is Christ. Okay? It's all pointing forward. It's all promise. The New Testament's all fulfillment because Jesus comes. But one of the things we see in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 20 is that God makes another promise or covenant a covenant that is building on this previous promise. It's telling us more about it. He makes this covenant or promise with Moses. Moses and the Israelites have left Egypt. And Moses has gone on to Mount Sinai and he's gotten the Ten Commandments. And he comes down with the Ten Commandments to deliver them to the people. And in the Ten Commandments, God is revealing more clearly his promise of Jesus. And the fourth commandment is one of those one of those commandments. And what he says is, he says, listen, you shall keep the Sabbath holy. Right? For God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. So you're supposed to be like God. 
You're what's what we call being godly, right? And the epitome of being godly is doing what God would do. And God worked six days. On the seventh day, he rested. And you're to do the same thing. You're to do the same thing. God also commanded a Sabbath year. In other words, every seven years, they would take a whole year off of work. That sounds great, doesn't it? Right? <laughs> and he, cre- he created what's, or he commanded what's called the year of Jubilee. Every seventh cycle, or after 49 years, in the 50th year, they would take a year off uh, on the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee, every single one of these Sabbaths, whether it was the seventh day where you rest, or the seventh year, or the year of Jubilee at the end of seven cycles, all of it pointed to, in increasing measure, this picture that our rest is in God. That we rest in Him and trust Him, and He'll put all things right. Hear that? He will set everything that's been set wrong by our sin, He will set right. It was all pointing to that. That we'll ultimately have our rest in Him. See, it was a command given to us to point us forward to our rest being in God. See, you take that day off just to trust Him and rest in Him and say, I don't have to work because God's going to do all this. He's going to set it all straight. He's going to take care of me, and I'm going to get to rest in Him eternally. That was the point of it. But the Pharisees misunderstood the Sabbath law. And they misunderstood all the other laws with it. And they wrongly saw the Sabbath as well as the other laws as another measure of their performance in earning the approval of God. And they missed the purpose of it because ultimately they missed the one who fulfills it, Jesus. See, Sabbath through Scripture is a picture of rest, of things being set right. It's a blessing or a gift built into the creation order for the good of man. That's why Jesus can tell the Pharisees in one of the gospel exchanges that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was given to you for your good. It points forward to our eternal rest in Jesus. Sabbath was meant to, now I want you to hear the irony of this, it was meant to get get us off the performance track, to get us off the wheel of achievement to stop striving for accomplishment, the kind of accomplishment that we are all all endlessly running after, the kind of achievement we all want to have that we're unable to sometimes rest from, right? You, You know you run on that track, don't you? You want to achieve? You want to do something? And God gives you a gracious command to put everything aside and trust Him and rest in Him and experience one day per week, to experience one day per week what God promises you will experience eternally in Christ. Hear that? It's a little picture of what's coming. See, that was the point of it. And the Pharisees saw it as a way to achieve and earn God's approval. So now that you understand the larger biblical purpose, what it points to, I want to turn more into the story of Luke here specifically. And I want to see a couple of ways that we undermine the gospel when we don't approach the Sabbath biblically. Okay, a couple of ways that we do that. There's, there's two ways that we actually undermine the gospel. I'm going to spend the majority of my time on the first one because it's predominantly what this passage is dealing with. Here's what it is. Here's the first one. We, we can undermine the gospel through using Sabbath observance. Do you hear that? I'm talking about the Lord's Day here. I'm not going to deal with why it switched from the seventh day to the first day of the week, except to say it has to do with the resurrection of Jesus, and that's what the apostles celebrated, okay? So just sort of cope with that and ask me another time, all right? But we can undermine the gospel through using Sabbath observance as a standard of acceptance with God. Do you hear that? We can undermine the gospel by using it as a standard of our acceptance with God. See, when we see the Sabbath as a law to be kept in order to earn God's favor and acceptance, then we misunderstand the whole law in at least two brief ways. I want to just sort of subcategory. First, we don't understand the, the holiness of the law's demands, do we? 
We don't understand the holiness of them and the fact that we could never reach them and the fact that the law is supposed to drive us to our need for grace and mercy and encourage us to not try and perform for God, but to look to Him for hope and grace. Second, we don't realize that the law has always been meant to point us to Jesus. So, so I want to say that as sort of a subcategory. The Old Testament promises and commands were given to point forward to the one who is their fulfillment, Jesus. So what happens when this is misunderstood is that we make the law, that's a good gift, we make that law into a performance standard that we have to keep to earn God's approval. We do it in all sorts of ways. See, when we are basing our, standard, our standing before God on our own performance, then what happens is we end up missing the grace and mercy of God. And when we don't understand the grace and mercy of God, what happens? We end up being people who aren't gracious and merciful. So let me show you how this works out in the lives of the Pharisees. Here's, here's the first way it works out in their lives. They didn't care about the needs of people. They didn't care about the needs of people. They only cared about their self-imposed standards of holiness. That's what they cared about. Um, in other words, they're, they're self-righteous jerks. Let me Look at verse 1 with me. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. What they're doing here is they're, they're allowed to, according to the law, glean off the, the field. So whenever a farmer had a field in that day, what he was supposed to do was he was supposed to leave the exterior of his field ungleaned so that what could happen is the poor, those people who were hungry, could come through and glean from it and take some of it and have something to eat. That was how they served the poor then. You always left the exterior of your land ungleaned so they could come through and take some of it. And what would happen is the poor would come in and they would take that and then they would rub it between their hands so they could get the kernel of it and then they would eat it. That's a kind of work. It's a threshing. So you would harvest and then you would thresh and then you would eat. So you're, not only are you harvesting, that's a kind of work, but then you're threshing and preparing a meal, also a kind of work. Okay? And they're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So all of a sudden what you see is Jesus and his disciples walking through the edge of a field, gleaning, harvesting, threshing, preparing food and eating it. That's what they were doing because they were hungry, because they were poor and they were in need. And the Pharisees see this Verse 2, but some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? What are they eating? It was perfectly lawful for them to glean from the field, so what's the law they're violating? The law they're violating is that they're working. You're not supposed to work, so why are you working? Who are the Pharisees that are asking this question? See, they seem to be quite interested in observing all that Jesus and his friends do, don't they? and nitpicking at it all the time. They're always looking for a stumble. Who are these guys? They're basically conservative Jewish religious leaders. That's who they are. They really were, in some ways, the heroes of the people because they were standing against mixing up Judaism with Rome. The Sadducees were sort of liberal. They were actually the ones who led the Sanhedrin, and they were kind of saying, hey, you know what? Let's go ahead, and so were the Herodians especially. Let's go ahead and let's sort of intermix with Rome, and, and it's okay if Judaism gets watered down. And, and the Sadducees you know, were the guys who, especially the Herodians, were saying, let's buddy up to Herod, and let's do things their way. And then, of course, the Sadducees are saying, you know what? All that Old Testament, you can't take all that literally. That's too much. We like the first five books. All this resurrection from the dead stuff and angels and demons. Uh, we don't, we're not interested in that stuff. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are the guys who are saying, you know what, the whole Old Testament, we believe all of it. We ought to believe it all. We follow it. And we don't want to mix our religion with Rome's politics and somehow get this admixture that's gross. We want to keep it pure. We want to keep the faith pure. And they're out with the people, and the people were behind the Pharisees. And when the Pharisees kicked up the dust, the Sadducees were paying attention because they didn't want the people revolting against them because they were an actual leadership in that they led the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish council. So that's who the Pharisees are. 
And the scribes that are with them, they're the law checkers. In other words, these are the guys who are making sure that the letter of the law is being kept, right? And they seem to misunderstand the law's purpose in pointing to Christ and thought instead that the law's purpose was to be a standard by which they earned God's approval. Now, I want to be fair. There were a few Pharisees who ended up following Jesus. We'll see later in Luke. Not all of them rejected him, but the vast majority of them did. They thought the law was something that they could earn God's approval through. And what they did is they created a whole bunch of tack-on laws to help them judge themselves positively, right? In comparison with others. You guys ever done that? You know, when you're on a performance track, what happens? You're always judging others and self. And you have one of two outcomes when you're judging others and against yourself. One of two outcomes. You're either the fairly optimistic person who sort of finds that you stack up really well next to other people, right? I tend to be in that category. That's my sin, okay? Or you're the fairly pessimistic person who finds that you don't stack up well compared to other people at all. Jason tends to fall in that category, right? Neither one of those things are humble, by the way. They're both prideful because we're not supposed to be comparing ourselves with other people. We're not on a performance track. But the Pharisees loved to be on a performance track. And they actually created 39 categories for Sabbath keeping. Ready for that? 39 categories. And in those 39 categories, they had over 2,000 individual offenses that you could commit on the Sabbath. Think about that. 2,000 individual offenses broken into 39 categories. Okay, so the, the disciples here are violating about four categories because they're, they're out there, they're harvesting, they're threshing, they're preparing food. So they're violating four of the 39 categories or so, three to four depending on the scholar you ask, of those categories. And what's interesting is, is that they had categories or, or little sub-laws like you can't drag a stick behind you on the ground um, on the Sabbath because if the stick drags in the ground, you're tilling the soil. That's work. Hear that? I'm not kidding. They would say that women, one of their, one of the, women could not wear a bow in their hair on the Sabbath because that was a burden to their neck. It was work. So you certainly couldn't harvest and thresh and prepare grains for a meal. That's work. And what Jesus does is he teaches them, if you understand Sabbath properly and that it points to your rest in me, then you'll see why it's okay for those who are hungry to get food on the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying is that these works of necessity are permissible on the Sabbath. See, they misunderstood the original purpose of the law. They misunderstood the original purpose of the law. Look at how Jesus points that out. Verse 3. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him? Now, Jesus is going to go back to David because the Pharisees love David. They're not going to question David, right? So what did David do? Haven't you read about it? How he entered the house of God, that's the tabernacle, and he took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. In other words, what Jesus does, he says, I'm going to point you to the example of David. God had commanded that the bread of the presence, which was kept in the tabernacle, only be eaten by priests. What they did is they put 12 loaves in the tabernacle, the bread of the presence, and they would exchange those loaves every Sabbath. So they put the loaves in there, the next Sabbath they would exchange them with fresh ones. The only people when those loaves were taken out on the Sabbath, at the end of the week, the only people who were allowed to eat those loaves were the priests, the Levitical priests. That was the command. But what happened was David and his men were permitted to eat it. David is a, is, is a king who wasn't yet in office. Actually, who was in king, at, uh, king at that time was Saul. And David and his men, his soldiers, were on the run they were on the run from Saul. Saul knew that David was anointed as king. Saul didn't like that because he didn't want to be overthrown. So Saul was pursuing David and his men. David would not take out Saul because David did not want to hurt God's anointed. 
And so David respected his position as king and would not take him out. So David and his men were on the run. And they got hungry. They got near starvation. And they came to the tabernacle. And they came to the priest and said, we need something to eat. Let us eat the bread of the presence. And the priest didn't say, but don't you understand? I don't want to violate the law of God and give starving men the bread of the presence. You're just going to have to starve. It's not what he said. The priest said, none of you have had sex with women recently, have you? Because that was one of the standards. They said, no. He said, okay. Then you can eat this bread and gave it to them. See, the priest understood that the purpose of the law never, listen, the purpose of the law never included starving out God's people. The purpose of the law never included not taking care of needs people had. It was necessary that these guys eat. God didn't design Sabbath because he wanted people to jump through a hoop. He designed it to demonstrate we can trust him and rest in him and will eventually have eternal rest from our toil. And what the priest knew was that there are weightier matters of the law. Sometimes we think that every sin is equal. They're not. There are weightier matters of the law. And God commanded him, don't let anybody but the priests eat this. But God also said, you don't let God's anointed and his men starve. And that's a weightier matter of the law. You take care of them. It's what happens with Rahab and the spies, right? They come in, and what does Rahab do? She lies, and she's commended for it because she's attending to a weightier matter of the law. She's, prote- she's protecting people's lives. God gave Sabbath. He gave it to point forward to our eternal rest in Jesus. And these guys missed, the Pharisees missed The Sabbath law pointed forward to the gracious rest that's coming in Jesus and that it's not a performance standard through which they can earn God's favor. They miss that. And Jesus is telling them, my disciples are hungry and there's nothing wrong with them getting something to eat. And who is Jesus to say this, by the way? Verse 5. Because they might wonder, who are you to tell us how to interpret the Old Testament? Who are you to tell us what the law is really all about. And Jesus says in verse 5, and he said to them, the son of the man, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's who I am to tell you. See, the Pharisees wanted to load up a heavy legal and performance burden on the people. They wanted just to load up a burden of law keeping on them, performing for God's acceptance. And Jesus said to them, I'm the one who says to you, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I see, are you carrying around the burden? Are you carrying around the burden of being on a performance track with God so that God will approve you and accept you, so that God won't reject you? How do you know How do you know if that's happening? What does it look like? Let me give you some examples. Are you comparing yourself to other people, either positively or negatively, either favorably or unfavorably? It doesn't really matter. Are you comparing yourself to other people? Then you have not yet understood that God has accepted you in Jesus. And it doesn't matter how you stack up against others. And you can't stack up well against the law. Your hope is in how Jesus stacks up against the law. Hear that? Are you constantly wearing yourself out with whether or not you're being faithful? You guys know what I mean by that? Am I being faithful enough to God that I could really be saved? Am I being faithful enough that I'm not losing this salvation I have? Then you have not understood that you can rest, you can rest in the fact that Jesus was faithful for you. That you can look to him and rest in him. See, it isn't your faithfulness that saves you, it's Jesus' faithfulness that saves you. Are you constantly worried about 
whether or not God is just waiting for you to do something wrong so he can smack you down for your sins. Then you haven't understood the fact that he's for you in Jesus. Understood that. You don't have to cower in fear or relentlessly keep your hands to the plow of the law under the concern that God is looking for a reason to punish you. Jesus has earned you all the favor from God that you could ever want or ever need. You can rest in Him. See, but not only do the Pharisees not care about the needs of people because they were so consumed with self-righteousness, the Pharisees didn't care about being merciful to people because they didn't understand mercy. Look at verse 6. On another Sabbath, so this is another Sabbath, but Luke is putting these together because he wants us to get a picture. On another Sabbath, he, that being Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching, as was his normal practice, as you see through Luke. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. Likely this is based because of some sort of paralysis. His hand is withered up, doesn't work anymore. Okay. Verse 7, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. And the way the text reads, it's like they're watching him out of the corner of their eye. You know what that kind of watching is like, right? When you're watching out of the corner of your eye, wanting to see if you can catch somebody doing something wrong, suspiciously. And they watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. The irony of that verse. The Pharisees believed that Jesus could heal. They believed it. They just thought he was doing it by the power of Satan, which they will later in Luke, you will see, accuse him of. They were hoping to catch him healing on the Sabbath so they could accuse him of violating the no work command of the Sabbath. Yet, apparently, it isn't work to follow a guy around and spy on him and then try to plot to kill him. But it is work to heal somebody. Do you see the irony here? These people are following him around to try to catch him so that they can put him to death. Meanwhile, saying, we're going to put him to death because of our outrage over the fact that he's healing people. Verse 8, but he knew their thoughts. This is speaking here of Jesus' omniscience. He knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. Verse 9, and Jesus said to them, look what he says to the Pharisees, I ask you, and here comes the rebuke. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life, or to destroy it. Hear what Jesus is doing with the Pharisees here? Are you accusing me of violating the law by doing good to someone? And yet you're seeking to destroy someone on the very same Sabbath? Have you missed the point altogether? How could you ever assume that God's Sabbath command was given to you as a performance track to such an extent that God would prohibit you from being merciful and good to people on that day. was never given for that reason. How could you not want to be merciful to, a pe- to people on a day that God has given to you to show God's merciful and gracious care for you? Did you get the point? Verse 10, And after looking around at them, He said to him, stretch out your hand. He just looks around at all of them, right? First, you can imagine the scene. There's all this tension. They're making an accusation. Jesus is about to heal this man, and it's as if the man is only an object lesson that Jesus cares for and is being merciful to him, but he's not looking at the man first. He looks around at all of them. What's lawful to do? And looks at every single one of them. He looks around at them all. And then he turns to the man and says, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled, verse 11, with fury. Literally, this is sort of a rabid, blind, foolish with anger kind of fury. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In other Gospels, we find out they plotted 
how to kill him. You guys understand what's happening here? And do you see the picture? The Pharisees have twisted the Sabbath into a performance standard through which they earn God's favor. As a result, they've missed the blessed gift of gracious rest and mercy that God is pointing to in the Sabbath. They've missed it. They've made this about their performance and thus they're angry. They're angry when someone doesn't perform according to their standard. They believe they have righteous indignation. That's what they think. We are righteously indignant. This man is violating God's law. See, how could Jesus violate the law on the Sabbath, they want to know. We would never do this kind of thing. He clearly doesn't care about the holiness of God. The problem, of course, is that they don't understand what the Sabbath is for and that they were never intended to be unmerciful on the Sabbath. Never. See, the problem with us is that we don't comprehend the grace and mercy of God. And when we don't, we aren't gracious and merciful to others. See, the Pharisees really understood how gracious and merciful that God is to his people. They would never have perverted the Sabbath command into a day where they were prohibited from doing good to people. See, that's a problem for religious types in general, though. Isn't it? Isn't that a problem for religious types in general? Here's what happens. We remove the grace of God from the picture, and we just become cold, angry hypocrites. I mean, sure, we, we look like we have our mess cleaned up. We look that way. And we lie to ourselves that we're joyful. And we try to deal with our guilt through religious duty or through helping people, and we pretend that we have it all together. But underneath, if we're honest, we feel distant from God. And we lack joy. And we're burdened with guilt. And we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. And sometimes they look good and sometimes we do. And we look at others who aren't quite up to our standards and say things like, well, I never. I can't believe anyone would ever what kind of people? Yet we, we forget that we're the kind of people for whom God had to crucify His Son just to relate to. See, when we're a people who understand that we are worse than we ever suspected, did you guys hear that? I want you to pause on that. Because when you come to Jason or I for counseling, and you say, man, I feel like I'm a mess, we're going to say, you have no idea how bad the mess is. Okay? No idea. We are worse than we ever suspected. Until we understand that we're a people who are worse than we ever suspected, who have nothing to bring to the table, that we're that kind of people, those kind of people who we can't believe anyone would ever be like. See, when we understand that God is the kind of God who loves us enough, to be gracious and merciful to us, even though we're that kind of people, then we'll be merciful and gracious to others. You see, when we understand both aspects of the cross, both of them, what, what are they? First, that our sin is so ugly that God had to punish His Son just to relate to us. That's why He went to the cross. Jesus, perfect, sinless, holy, undefiled. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. The eternal Son of God on the cross. Why? Because if He didn't go there and pay the penalty for our sins, God is so holy, He could not relate to us because we're that big a mess. If we don't understand the ugliness of the cross, that it's our sin that put Him there, we understand that first. And then second, understand that God loves us and is gracious enough that it pleased Him to put us there. Or excuse me, pleased Him to put Jesus there. If we don't understand both of those aspects, we're never going to be gracious and merciful to people. See, God had to put Jesus on the cross just to relate to us. If He was going to relate to us. So we did. And why did He? Because He wants to relate to us. And so it pleased him to crush his son. 
That's how God loves us. When you understand both aspects of the cross, then you're moved to be merciful to other people. Self-righteousness dies at the cross. Dies. And the desire to love God and others and to move mercifully toward them comes alive at the cross. You see, we can undermine the gospel by turning the Sabbath command into a performance standard and missing the point that all it was doing was pointing forward to our rest in Jesus. That working would stop for us and we would rest in him and that God would care for us. That Jesus was coming to reverse the curse to be the promise fulfiller. Second, we can also undermine the gospel. This is the last point. I'm going to take it quickly. Second way we undermine the gospel, through ignoring the gift of Sabbath rest, through ignoring the gift of Sabbath rest that points forward to our eternal rest in Jesus. Hear that? So we can undermine the gospel by wrongly seeing Sabbath as something other than pointing forward to Jesus and enjoying it for that purpose. We can also undermine the gospel by ignoring the gift of Sabbath rest that points us forward to our eternal rest in Jesus. Now this last point, I'm going to admit, is not immediately available in the text we're looking at. It's really an inference from the text. Jesus doesn't come and tell the Pharisees, don't you understand the Sabbath observance has come to an end because I'm here. It's not what he says. He says the, Lord of Ma- the, excuse me, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's what he says. In Matthew 5, he doesn't say I came to abolish the law and the prophets. He says I, came, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill them. See, Jesus fulfills it. Jesus kept it himself. And guess what? So did the disciples. If you want to infer from the church's ongoing practice of setting apart a day, that's what they did. They set apart a day for corporate worship and for works of necessity and mercy. That's what they did. That day was the day of Jesus' resurrection, Sunday, when the new creation began. They set apart that day, the first day of every week. They met corporately and worshiped. They did acts of necessity and mercy on that day. They took offering every first day of the week, according to 1 Corinthians 16. That's when they met to worship, to gather, to enjoy their rest in God. See, the early church understood that while Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 4, Jesus is our eternal Sabbath rest. He is that. We still, have, we still live in a time when that is not yet fully experienced. Right? The day's coming when Jesus returns when all things will be finally and fully put right. That day is coming. When work will no longer be a burden and we'll have eternal rest in Jesus on that day. However, we still live in a day in which the effects of the fall are all around us, aren't they? We still live in a day where work is a burden and sin is still present and weariness still strikes us. So the Sabbath command to take one day for corporate worship and for rest and for works of mercy is still a blessing from God that we can receive and look forward to Jesus' return on that day. The grace of God is not a license to sin, and it's not an opportunity to do whatever you want and ignore the law of God as a gracious guide. It's not that. But when you see the law's commands as a slave master, as the commands of a slave master, whom you are trying to earn the approval of, then what happens is you tend to despise all the laws and the hoops you have to jump through, don't you? However, when you see the law's commands as the commands of a gracious Father who you know is trying to guide you into a blessed life, you love the law and are thankful for God's provision and pointing you in the right direction. Now, I understand that many of you have jobs that require you to work on Sundays and that it's, a necess- it's necessary to work to care for your families or pay your bills. And clearly, Jesus understands that too. Understands that. 
However, for those of us who are not in that position, those who are not in that, we should seize this gift from God of Sabbath rest. You guys hear that? We should seize this gift from God of Sabbath rest. We should trust God with our future. Listen to that. Trust God with our future enough to put aside our work. Because I say, you know, if God would do all this for me in Christ and promise me eternal rest in Christ, if I believe the gospel, then I believe God and I can trust him with my future. And I can put aside my work and rest. We should be filled with enough gratitude for our salvation that we desire to gather with other unbelievers to worship. Recognize clearly enough the mercy we've been shown to use this day to show mercy to others. See, what if we see Sunday as a gracious gift from God that gives us the chance to experience and reflect upon the rest and the grace and the mercy and the joy that he promises in the gospel? Not as a command to keep like it's a burden. If you don't keep it, God's going to be ticked off of you. But as a command that is a gift, a blessing, for you to take one day out of seven and just reflect on your eternal rest in Jesus and gather to worship with God's people and rest. Be merciful to others because you're thinking about the gospel that day. What if we took one day per week just to reflect on that? You see, that's the gift. Do you see what's happening here? God isn't giving you some burdensome command. The Pharisees didn't get that. He's giving you the gift of resting, gift of resting in the good news that Jesus is your eternal salvation and your rest. And that's a command that I look forward to keeping. And I, I encourage you to do the same. Let me pray. Father, we ask. We ask that you would help us to be a people who are thankful Thankful for the fact that you promised when we fell into sin that you promised to save us. People whom you promised to give the gift of rest to. Eternal rest in your Son. People whom you commanded to rest. To just reflect on the fact that we can trust you and that you're good and that you're going to give us eternal rest in your Son, Jesus. I pray that we would seize this day, the Lord's day. We would seize it and rejoice in you for this gracious gift. To constantly reflect on the picture of the gospel that it is. We would never turn it into a works-based righteousness. That we'd never turn it into a day that we perform on for you. Father, it would always be just a picture of what your son has already, already accomplished and what will ultimately be consummated when he returns. We look forward to that day and ask that your son would come soon, that we might rest in him for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.